Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for attending this evening. On behalf of our host, uh, His Excellency, the Governor of Western Australia, Kim Beasley, and on behalf of the Perth US Asia Centre and the Lowy Institute, can I welcome you to Government House for the Perth and Indian Ocean launch of the Lowy Institute's Asia Power Index 2018. Uh, can I start, as, as is the custom and practice of Government House and the University of Western Australia by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, if I could briefly outline the procedures for tonight, uh, shortly I'll uh, introduce and ask the Governor to make a contribution on the Asia Power Index. He'll be followed by Dr Michael Fullilove, who is the CEO of the Lowy Institute and then followed by Hervé Lemahieu, who is the research methodologist and compiler of the index. Uh, so those three will make a contribution from the podium and then we will adjourn to the panel and we'll be joined uh, at the panel, in the panel session, by Professor Ricky Kirsten uh, from Murdoch University. Uh, and we expect uh, all being well to wind up at about 7 p.m. So uh, I'll formally, introduced, uh, formally introduce uh, Ambassador and Governor Beasley uh, at the conclusion. But if I can just make some remarks about our other panellists, because once we hit the panel, we want to hit the ground running. Uh, Michael Fullilove is the Executive Director uh, of the Lowy Institute uh, and has been involved with the Lowy Institute since its inception, including doing the preparatory work for its establishment. Uh, he is a well-known, well-regarded, well-respected commentator on Australian foreign policy and global international affairs uh, and uh, has uh, served uh, previous Prime Ministers, in particular Prime Minister Paul Keating, as international advisor. Hervé Lemahieu, as I said, has done the research methodology uh, and the work for the Power Asia Power Index uh, and before his work uh, in joining the uh, Lowy Institute, was previously based in London with the International Institute for Strategic Studies, the IISS. Ricky Kirsten has experience uh, not just in academia, but also with DFAT, uh, having been posted for a period uh, in the Australian Embassy in Tokyo. She's a, a well-regarded international expert on, Tokyo, on, on Japan and North Asia and is currently the Interim Pro-Vice-Chancellor at the College of Arts, Law and Social Sciences at Murdoch University, but has previously worked at the ANU uh, in Asian and Japanese studies. Ambassador Beasley, now the Governor of Western Australia, uh, is a favourite son of Western Australia who needs no introduction, but his significant career should be reflected upon. Uh, member for Swan and Brand for over a 25-year period, Deputy Prime Minister, uh, an array of important uh, Commonwealth portfolios, Ambassador to Washington, and on his return to Washington, heavy engagement and involvement on the board of the Perth US Asia Centre, ASPE, and the, international, the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Uh, and uh, the only outside engagement he is allowed as Governor of Western Australia is to continue all of his University of Western Australia uh, matters as the official visitor, and we're very pleased at the Perth US Asia Centre that he remains on our board, giving us uh, fantastic advice. Ladies and gentlemen, could you please welcome our host, Governor Beasley.
thank you very much, uh, Professor. Uh, and can I also start, as you did, uh, with uh, our salutation to the traditional owners uh, of this, uh, this country, this area of the country in particular, the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, and pay our respects to their elders, uh, past, present, and emerging. Can I also acknowledge uh, Professor Stephen Smith? I get very, I find it difficult to refer to him as Professor. He's, uh, he's um, had a series of distinguished positions himself as the years have gone by, uh, but it's wonderful to see him here. See Dr. Michael Fullylove, the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute here too. It's, it, there's, there's not a huge familiarity with the Lowy Institute here in Western Australia. It is a, we don't have many think tanks. When I was in Washington, there, in Washington alone, there are about 350. And uh, that's before you start going out into the rest of the United States where there are literally some thousands of think tanks. We probably have half a dozen in this uh, country and none of them completely private as the Lowy Institute is. It's, about, it's the only one that is and it's a, uh, it's terrific that it's been set up and it does fabulous work, this being part of that. And uh, can I recognise too, Hervé Lemahieu, who is uh, the man, he's the Director of Asian Power and Diplomacy Program at the Lowy Institute and is a primary author of this publication. Professor Ricky Kirsten, very familiar to all of us here in Western Australia, fabulous to have such a substantial expertise, particularly in Japanese affairs, but more broadly in global politics here with us. And Rebecca Brown too, from, uh, from JETSI, uh, the Director General, Department of Jobs, Tourism, Science and Innovation. Terrific that, uh, that she has joined us also. But as I look around here, I should really say just distinguished guests all because you all are. I recognise far too many faces here. And, uh, but it's always good to, good to see you and, and, and welcome to the House. And thank you to the US Asia Centre and the Lowy Institute for inviting me to open and launch the Asia Power Index in Perth, Western Australia. As the southern gateway to the Indo-Pacific, WA is already bearing witness to the geopolitical shifts in the region. The Asia Power Index enables our state and the country more broadly to develop a clear and informed picture of what changes are occurring and who the existing and emerging regional players are. Whilst we will be discussing the Asia Power Index in some detail during today's panel discussions, I want to share with you some of my observations now. And I learned something from Michael as I came in. Being a complete techno-dinosaur, I downloaded the report and read it in its downloaded form. Had I not done so, and had I actually read it on, on the site, then I would have seen that it is possible to manipulate some of the calculations that are within it and come out with different conclusions yourself. And I would have liked to have done a bit of that manipulating, but on the whole, uh, the conclusions reached are uh, conclusions of sufficient strength uh, to be effectively able to deal with them without uh, too much disputes. Um, one which might come as no surprise to this audience is that the Asia Power Index identifies the US and China as effectively equal in core economic strength. What is startling, however, when viewing the capacity of states to exercise influence through economic means, such as leveraging existing trade and investment relationships, it is that index that has found that the United States lags behind China by a large margin. 
China is ranked in the top two of each category, with defence networks being the only exception. Its GDP is forecast to be almost twice the size of the US by 2030 on the PPP measure that, uh, that is used here. And there are also other growing economies in Asia that are worth mentioning. In a 2015 report, the world of, in 2050, PwC predicted Indonesia would become the fourth largest economy by PPP by 2050. The Asia Power Index goes one step further, listing Indonesia as the fourth largest economy by 2030. India, whilst already a large economy, sitting currently as the third largest economy, is forecast by both PwC and the Asia Power Index to maintain this ranking in 2030 and is predicted by PwC to overtake the US and become the second largest economy by 2050. It is also expected to be the fastest growing economy in the region, with the index predicting India to grow 169% between 2016 and 2030 and the country's working age population to grow by 169 million people by 2030. The index places Australia alongside Singapore and South Korea as overperformers in the region. Our three countries demonstrate greater influence than would usually be expected from a country of their economic size. However, this should not allow us to grow complacent. The index also predicts Australia will fall from 6th to 13th in overall power by 2030, with our economy dropping from 8th largest by PPP to 11th by 2030. It is vital that we embrace innovation, support research and development, and continue striving to diversify our economy. This could be through continued exploration of new opportunities in our mining resources and energy sector, cybersecurity, medical technologies, food and agribusinesses and other industries. When considering military capabilities and regional defence networks in the 25 index countries, the index highlights a remarkable difference. Although marked number two in overall military capability, China falls to eighth place in the region in overall defence networks. A similar reversal occurs with Australia, which is placed ninth in overall military capability and rising to second when considering overall defence networks. This reinforces the importance of maintaining our key security allies amidst the evolving global geopolitical architecture. Australia's military capabilities are integrally linked to our defence alliance networks. Nevertheless, the shifting equations in all the calculations indicate the onus will be on us as a partner of value and one whose demands for protection are low. We will need to intensify our capacity to operate our own version of asymmetric defence military strategies. We cannot afford mistakes in equipment purchase and work to sustain a technological edge. Defence spending is not about local political advantage. It is about national survival. We need to be a low-cost, high-value partner to allies and friends. Australia stands proudly in the top three countries ranked in the resilience category. The index defines resilience as our capacity to deter real or potential threats to state stability, measured through economic, political and institutional stability. A dynamic and responsive private sector is also central to resilience, particularly in such a rapidly changing region. Unfortunately, this is one area in which Australia falls short. 
As indicated in the government's recent Asian engagement strategy consultation paper, which quotes the findings of a 2017 PwC report, 90% of ASX 200 companies are not Asia-ready. 82% of BRW top 30 private companies are not adequately equipped to do business in Asia. Only 9% of Australian com companies are currently operating in Asia, and only 12% of Australian companies have any experience of doing business in Asia at all. As Asia's economic transformation continues to reshape our region, becoming Asia-ready will ensure that Australia continues to strengthen its resilience and becomes, as a result, future-ready. This is further reinforced in the Future Trends category of the Asia Power Index, where Australia is ranked 13th. Australia is not currently future-ready, and the index predicts that our working-age population will significantly decrease. In the 2030 index predictions, Australia will become the 17th place in terms of working-age population. The economic size of Australia is also predicted to fall to 11th place by 2030 at our current rate of growth. Thailand, the Philippines and Pakistan are all forecast to overtake us in economic size by 2030, with Malaysia and Bangladesh only a small margin behind. Those are devastating figures in terms of their geopolitical consequences if those figures uh, conform uh, to the pattern of relationships identified in this, uh, in this paper. Building and enhancing regional economic partnerships and economic diversification is central to future-proofing our economy. WA is leading the way in the development of a comprehensive Asian engagement strategy. Whilst the, indi the index indicates that we are by no means poor performers, deepening our engagement with our Asian neighbours will ensure we maintain our relevance and significance in a shifting geopolitical climate. Deepening our engagement with our nearest neighbour, Indonesia, would be particularly advantageous to us, and indeed Indonesia too. Within the Asia Power Index, Indonesia does not fall below 13th place in any ranking category, and is projected to overtake Japan and Russia's economy to be the fourth largest among all 25 countries included in the index. As noted in the recent Defence West and Perth US-Asia Centre Defence Conference, when I did the 1987 Defence White Paper, our GDP exceeded ASEAN's as a whole and was not too far off China's. 1987, we were about 70% of China's GDP, in fact. Now, we wouldn't even talk about that. Now, Indonesia's alone will pass us soon. This, in my lifetime, this is an extraordinary change. Uh, this, uh, this measure that we had back at the, effectively at the end of the Cold War when we were looking at our defence prospects. And I remember in that 87 white paper, I think China was mentioned twice and not in the context of any military calculation whatsoever. The impending conclusion of the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement will be beneficial in expanding our economic relationship, opening opportunities for Indonesian and Australian businesses and skills exchanges. Our relationship with Indonesia will be critically important when navigating through a rapidly changing global environment. Our state and national prosperity will depend upon us enhancing our engagement 
with countries in the Indo-Pacific region, particularly those in South and Southeast Asia. It's arguably much more important now than it has ever been. As stated in the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper, Australia and our regional partners have a shared interest in seeking to build a regional economic and strategic culture that supports stability, cooperation, the rule of law and openness. It is the interests not just of Australia but of the region that countries continue to foster ongoing dialogue and cooperation. As stated in the index, in 2016 Australia was the second largest destination for international students, for example. Education is Australia's third largest export sector and the largest service export. International students contributed 28 billion to the economy in 2016-17 and will contribute approximately 130,000 skilled migrants to our workforce upon graduating. Observing the index predictions of Australia's declining working age population, international education and international students will play a central role, therefore, in our future prosperity. The means to monitor strategic shifts within a rapidly changing environment in such a clearly, clear and timely manner makes the Asia Power Index a real analytical asset. Whilst the challenges we are presented with in the global economic and political environment are considerable, diplomatic opportunities are plentiful. To quote a recent piece by Dr Michael Fulilove, we need to bolster our own national capabilities so that we are better positioned to shape our external environment and buttress the international system. Well, I congratulate Michael, Hervé and the team at the Lowy Institute for constructing such a comprehensive assessment of power and influence in the Indo-Pacific region. And I'll be interested to see how power and influence in the region shifts in future iterations of the index. Now, I'm now going to invite Michael, Executive Director of the Lowy Institute, to officially launch the Asia Power Index. Thank you very much, Kim. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, first of all, let me say it's lovely to be back in Perth for the second time in a week. Uh, last Friday, I stopped in Perth for a few hours on, on, after getting off that direct flight from Perth to London. And I must say how nice it is to board an aircraft in the drizzle of the old world and emerge from it in the bright sunshine of the new world. Um, I think my job here today is principally to say thank you, although I'm going to make a couple of quick comments later. But let me begin by thanking the Governor, His Excellency Kim Beasley AC. Let me say this. At a time when Australian politics seems to be getting smaller and smaller, Kim is a reminder of the largeness that Australian politics sometimes achieves. It's hard to think of other political figures from either side of politics who have held so many significant national offices as Stephen Smith ran through from Defence Minister, many other Cabinet Minister portfolios, Deputy PM, Leader of the Opposition, Ambassador of the United States, Governor of Western Australia. It's impossible to think of any figure who combines such a record of political achievement with analytical sagacity and generosity of spirit, and he showed, I think, his 
a genius as an analyst just now in giving this lovely introduction to the Asia Power Index, so much so that I feel somewhat redundant. Um, so thank you, Kim, for making those comments. Um, I wrote a book a few years ago, uh, uh, and one of the characters in the book was Wendell Wilkie, and Wilkie actually always reminded me of Kim Beasley, another big-hearted, broad-shouldered, broad-minded individual. I well remember when I, Stephen mentioned I worked for Paul Keating when I was a very young man, and I remember once landing at Canberra Airport and seeing this very significant cabinet minister there, and, uh, and I went and had a yarn to Kim, and Kim offered me a lift up to Parliament House. Now, that's a small thing, but it's a telling thing and not something that, um, that many uh, ministers in those days did. So I'm very, very grateful indeed to Kim for opening up the house. Of course, it's very familiar, reminds me a little of my ballroom in my own um, house in Sydney. Um, let, let me say that uh, this is a style I could get used to, Kim. In fact, I said to Kim on the way in that from now on there's going to be a new fully love rule, and that is that all Lowy Institute events should take place in vice-regal establishments. Uh, I also I like, I admire the thrones that have been set up for us. Thank you, thank you, Kim. Normally we don't have anything like this, so thank you very much. Let me also thank Stephen Smith, a distinguished former Australian Foreign and Defence Minister and now, of course, a professor and, and board member. Like all West Australians, Stephen is very proud of his state and I remember he always took every opportunity to nudge this state into the spotlight. I remember him bringing Condi uh, here in 2009, bringing Hillary Clinton and Leon Panetta here in 2012. And like his successor, Julie Bishop, Stephen always looked out to the world across the Indian Ocean. And I must say, living securely on the East Coast, looking out onto the Pacific, I always thought this was a bit quixotic. But in fact, I was wrong, dead wrong. And in recent years, the centrality of the Indian Ocean beside the Pacific Ocean has really taken hold. As you all know, the, the new framework, the official framework through which the US government, the Australian governments, and many other government, like-minded governments in the region think about our part of the world is, is through the Indo-Pacific. Earlier this year, I visited PACOM to, to pay a, a call on Harry Harris, whom at that point we thought was going to be the next ambassador in Canberra until Mr. Trump changed his mind. And of course, in the interim, PACOM has become Indo-PACOM. So let me say kudos to Stephen. It turns out that was both good politics and indeed good geopolitics. Let me thank Ricky Kirsten for being here, a scholar that uh, I've admired for many years, that we read extremely closely on Japanese politics and global politics at the Institute. Thank you very much, Professor Kirsten, for being here. I also want to thank Gordon Flake. I know Gordon is not here this evening, but it was Gordon who invited us here. And I have to say, Gordon has done fantastic things with the Perth USA Asia, US Asia Centre. He is a terrific analyst in his own right on North Korea and other issues, but he has brought enormous energy and effort to this exercise. He has put the centre on the national map and on the international map, and I'm very happy and grateful indeed, we're grateful indeed, to be hosted by, by Gordon and the centre tonight. Let me say, we are here to launch um, on this part of the world for the first, the first Indian Ocean launch of the Asia Power Index, this very impressive report of which we're very proud. This is one of the most important projects the Institute has ever undertaken. And what you will see in a, in a minute or two 
is the culmination of two hours, uh, two, two hours, two years of work um, by, in particular led by Hervé Lemahieu and a small team, but really something that the whole of the Institute has leaned into. And we're very proud that expertise from all sides, defence policy, economic policy, uh, expertise on many different countries has gone into this index. Why, why did we come up with this idea? Why, have we, why did we decide to measure uh, power in Asia and why did we decide to do it now? Well, the answer is because now global wealth and global power are moving eastwards towards us. And we felt that there was a need for a research tool to track the nature and the speed of this shift. And the index is that tool. It aims to sharpen the debate on power dynamics in Asia. It is the most comprehensive effort ever undertaken to measure power in Asia. It ranks 25 countries across eight different types of power using 114 indicators. As, as Kim said, the, the, you can download the report, but the, the index lives online. And I would encourage you all to go to the, the, the special website, power.loweinstitute.org, because you can manipulate the weightings and you can adjust how, what sort of results the index spits out, as, as Kim has promised me he's going to do tomorrow on the Vice Regal laptop. Um, when we launched this in, in, uh, in Washington, one intelligence analyst told us this was the best attempt at quantifying power he had ever seen. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, the reason we did it now, the reason we launched this index now, is that things are changing so quickly in our part of the world. Just a few weeks ago, I was really struck by a couple of visits. In the space of two days, Prime Minister Abe visited President Xi in Beijing. And then the next day, the next day, he hosted Prime Minister Modi of India in his home prefecture in Japan. In the space of two days, you had the big three of, of Asia meeting. We, the diplomatic geometry of the region is changing. And as a US ally, we have been, become used to the linear application of power. That's how the United States ran Asia for 70 years through the hub-and-spoke model, through the treaty alliances, the linear application of power. But that is changing, and Australians are going to have to bone up on their trigonometry because uh, triangular uh, uh, diplomatic shapes are going to be increasingly important. Right now, we are going into summit season, um, and the pace of regional diplomacy is increasing. I have to say, it does feel like others are making the running. It does feel like we have lost a step. And how could it be otherwise when our new Prime Minister will spend most of the time between now and the next election introducing himself to his counterparts? Now, I don't say that as a partisan comment, um, because the, that has also applied to Labor Prime Ministers in recent years. When you've had five Prime Ministers in five years, perhaps a sixth in, 60, in, in the sixth year. How can you expect Australian leaders to have had the longevity in office, to have the experience, to have the bandwidth to get beyond the chaos in parliament and to think 
about the challenges that are approaching us and to think about how they can position our country for what we face. It does seem to me we need to rediscover our ambition, we need to revive our history as a country of creative diplomacy. It is hard for beleaguered governments to be creative, but we need it. And that's one of the reasons that we uh, embarked on this journey to establish the Asia Power Index, because as Kim said, the a you only have to be on that site for a few minutes to see the changing reality. We hope that the Asia Power Index will focus Australians' minds on the challenge. As I mentioned, the leader of the initiative has been my colleague, Hervé Lemahieu, the director of the Institute's Asian Power and Diplomacy Program. He is a very impressive young scholar who's shown enormous intelligence and wit in leading a small team to produce this first-class product. So, ladies and gentlemen, Thank you. So thank you again, uh, Governor Beasley, for hosting us and, and all the other hosting organisations. Thank you all for coming. I'm delighted to launch uh, on the Indian Ocean the Asia Power Index, and I'm also delighted to welcome my colleague, Hervé Lemahieu, to tell you more about it. Thank you very much. So thank you, thank you, Michael, and I also want to extend my thanks to the Perth US Asia Center uh, for organizing this launch, and in particular to His Excellency the Governor for hosting us this evening. Uh, let me begin with a scene setter for our discussion. In this presentation, I will show you how we at the Lowy Institute define power, have gone about developing a framework for measuring it, and how this can serve as a useful analytical tool for tracking geopolitical changes in the region. Now, states have a variety of means at their disposal to shape the international environment. We look at 114 indicators across eight thematic measures represented by the eight facets of the octagon you see in front of you. Once we plot country performance against these measures, we begin to form an outline of the overall distribution of power in our region, and it looks something like this. Immediately apparent is that China and the United States are now firmly established as peer competitors in Asia. The power differential between these two regional superpowers and every other country in our index is substantial, and in fact the 10-point lead that the United States has over China can best be described as a position of contested primacy. Now it may be tempting to reduce Asia and Asian geopolitics to a two-player game, but in reality our Indo-Pacific ecosystem is made out of a much wider array of actors. We look at 25 countries reaching as far west as Pakistan, as far north as Russia, and as far into the South Pacific as Australia and New Zealand. Now, to build our methodology, we had to look at how scholars and policymakers have understood the meaning of power over time. And power, broadly conceived, is how states advance their interests abroad and achieve outcomes favorable to those interests. This relies on a lot of factors. It's premised on capabilities, it's premised on relationships, but traditionally, at least, it has been understood in terms of hard power, which is the ability to impose costs or confer benefits that shape the choices of others. And the, true, the truest expression of hard power comes with military capability. Attempts to measure military capability, however, has proven quite tricky and has changed over time with strategic and, and technological evolutions. I mean, it used to be that the size of armed forces, and here I'm comparing China with the United States, was the key metric for military strength. Nowadays, however, China is actually reducing uh, the size of its armed forces as it seeks to professionalize them. 
So similarly with weapons and platforms, uh, different metrics have held over time. Um, it used to be that uh, warships was the key metric for international power and for preserving the balance of power. Um, in the Cold War, it really became about nuclear weapons and uh, the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, not only as a way of understanding, but also of seeking to preserve the balance of power. Today, um, defense spending, I would say, is often characterized as the key proxy for military power. And it's argued that increased defense spending is contributing to a regional arms race that is deteriorating uh, the security order. order. However, if we look at uh, military expenditure in the region, um, it has gone up quite a rate, but governments do not appear to be increasing the defense spending more quickly than their economies are growing. In other words, their defense spending as a percent of GDP has proven remarkably stable. And once we aggregate all these proxies for military strength, uh, including assessments of training and readiness, uh, relevant combat experience and geographic factors, we think that the military balance of power still works decisively in Washington's favor. China's People's Liberation Army has undertaken a sustained and long-term defense effort. This has, en has enhanced its maritime capabilities in the South China Sea. Um, and, and to be sure, China now has the ability to severely complicate any adversary's operations in its near abroad. But it is not yet capable of projecting and sustaining military power over vast distances. Another vital component of hard power lies in economic resources. After all, the economy is the source of all government expenditure and as such represents the cornerstone of a state's power. As a historic case in point, uh, by 1988, Japan had actually become a larger economy in nominal GDP terms than the Soviet Union. In retrospect, this was a clear telltale sign that the Soviet Union could no longer sustain its level of defense spending in its arms race with the United States. And today, GDP has become even more important as a proxy for economic development, for progress, and in fact, power. And when we map GDP at purchasing power parity, it's evident that China's economy is already larger than the United States. However, as with any individual uh, indicator of power, GDP is a necessary but incomplete part of the puzzle. It does not tell the full story. To be sure, a large and increasingly affluent domestic market in China exerts a growing gravitational pull in the world. But despite having a smaller economy, the US still manages to outcompete China in our assessment of its global monetary power, as illustrated by the role of the US dollar. It also retains a vital technological edge in innovation for now. Now, perhaps the single most overlooked dimension of power is the concept of resilience. And that's by something we, which, by which we mean the capacity to deter real or potential threats to state stability. These can emanate from inside or outside the country, um, but we look at them, we conceive of them in three ways. Firstly, institutional stability. We measure government effectiveness, political stability, and the absence of internal conflict. Why? Because domestic instability can sap attention and resources away from foreign policy priorities. And this leads us to a slightly counterintuitive finding. Institutional stability is inversely correlated with size. Almost regardless of their political systems, countries with the greater populations, like China and India, are saddled with the greatest governance costs, while small and developed states, like Singapore, are the least burdened by internal concerns. This is almost the opposite um, when it comes to geopolitical security, because geopolitical risk from abroad can also threaten state stability. 
And here we look at uh, factors which, by and large, favor large countries, um, as well as uh, countries like New Zealand and Australia, who are surrounded by friends and, and fish. Um, but uh, the smaller countries uh, that have uh, unresolved conflict legacies, that have um, active boundary disputes with their larger neighbors, they're the ones who are most uh, adversely affected by uh, geopolitical risk. <clears throat> the third component um, of resilience is something we're calling geoeconomic security. The idea here is that globalization comes with tremendous benefits, but it also comes with certain risks. And those risks are not equally shared by all. China and the United States are the largest trading nations on Earth, but they are comparatively well insulated from a bilateral trade war by the fact that they have large domestic consumer markets that insulate them. Not so for Singapore and Vietnam, um, whose cross-border trade is much more important relative to the share of their smaller domestic economies. Success and small size is a double-edged sword. These countries, these smaller countries, would be disproportionately affected by disruptions in glo global supply chains. They would be the collateral damage in the event of rising protectionism and a possible economic decoupling between economic giants. In fact, the story that China is a trade-dependent country, and particularly dependent on US trade, um, no longer holds since the global financial crisis. Tariffs are unlikely to hurt China as much as the Trump administration would hope. If there is one critical weakness for China in terms of its geoeconomic security, it's probably in terms of its growing dependency on importing energy. At a time when the United States is increasingly energy self-sufficient, China imports over 500 million tons of oil equivalents every year to meet its domestic energy deficit. And that involves procuring fossil fuels from farther afield, further and further afield, as well as building uh, strategically vulnerable transit routes for the energy. Now, returning to the map, you'll see that we've built the index around two different organizing principles. Power is what you have, which are the four resource measures on the left. But it's also what you do with what you have, which are the four influence, uh, sorry, four influence measures on the right. Um, when uh, the first set essentially looks at capabilities, and the second set of our measures uh, looks at active levels of influence, which involves networking, initiative, and strategic choices in relation to our neighborhood. In other words, power is not just material, it is also relational. And even the most powerful countries require some degree of consensus building, or at a very minimum, acquiescence from others. Our first influence measure is diplomatic influence. Here we look at the extent and standing of a country's diplomatic relations in terms of its footprint of embassies in the region, in terms of their involvement in multilateral clubs and summits, in terms of their voting shares in multilateral development banks. But we also look at one uh, very interesting expert-based uh, reading of the ability of national leaders to pursue their state's diplomatic interests abroad. And when we look at political leadership, you'll see that US political leadership, just to put it politely, is in doubt. Others are quickly filling the vacuum, and by that I mean not just, uh, not just Xi Jinping, but actually also notably Shinzo Abe of Japan, who's managed to resurrect the TPP minus the United States. Also look at Singapore there as a leader for the ASEAN region. The next uh, measure that, uh, looks at that looks at this influence and relationships um, is another Achilles heel for the US. And this perhaps is even more worrying because it's structural rather than political. US power in Asia uh, is severely compromised by its undeveloped, underdeveloped economic relationships. China does 70% 70, 70 more trade with the Indo-Pacific annually than does the US. 
And even when we look at investments, which favor the US slightly more, because over time the US has, has more stock investments still than China, we have to look not just at absolute flows of investment, but also the distribution of those flows. The trouble for the United States, and Australia, I should add, is that investments are skewed towards a few markets only. For example, the US uh, foreign direct investment in Australia alone equals all its foreign direct investment in the entire ASEAN bloc. China, on the other hand, seems to be doing more with less. Its FDI is spread geographically, and Beijing invests in smaller countries like Laos and Cambodia, where it accounts for a higher share of total inward investment. And on top of that, the Belt and Road Initiative also plays to China's strength in terms of its economic diplomacy as the primary lender for emerging markets with limited access to Western capital. Now, if we want to talk about China's Achilles heel, we need to look at defense diplomacy, as the governor has already pointed out. Defense networks act as force multipliers of military capability, and the US alliance system built over 60 years continues to ensure the security of much of the region. In fact, you can see the hub and spoke system when we look at conventional alliance system. You see the hub in the US and you see the spokes in terms of uh, Japan, South Korea, and Australia, the linear connections. We're also looking at the non-linear collections, connections. We're looking at the non-allied partnerships. And this is increasingly where we're seeing movement in Asia. We measure the depth of emerging defense relations on the basis of arms transfers or joint training exercises and defense consultation pacts um, as a sign of emerging strategic intent, as a sign that countries of the region are hedging against the possible retrenchments of the United States or the rise of China militarily. China's defense diplomacy has not kept pace with its rising military capabilities. It's only eighth in this measure. And the data suggests that China is becoming more vulnerable to a military and strategic counterweight led by other regional powers. Last, but by no means least, we have cultural influence. This is the ability of countries to shape international public opinion through cultural appeal and interaction. The US and Japan lead in terms of their cultural projection into the region, exports of cultural goods and services like anime or Hollywood movies. China and India lead in terms of their people exchanges due to their significant regional diasporas. But it is the United States that still enjoys a unipolar advantage in terms of information flows as the foremost source of news and media in the region and as the preferred study destination for Asian students. This is despite billions of dollars that China has invested in its state-owned media abroad and in student scholarships. We're not seeing the results yet. Once we've mapped the component parts of our index, the next challenge becomes one of determining their relative importance for our overall assessment. We assigned a set of weightings to the measures in consultation with policymakers from across the region. They take into account the dimensions of power considered most advantageous to countries given the current geopolitical landscape of the region. But it is, of course, possible to reach different value judgments about the relative importance of these measures. To a certain extent, power is situational. Where you stand depends on where you sit. And if you sit in Pyongyang, you define your power almost entirely on the basis of military capability. Sure enough, if we look at uh, military capability and ramp that up to 100%, um, you'll see that North Korea, would, in, the, in the books of uh, Kim Jong-un, would be a top five power in Asia. But I would argue this is also a high-risk strategy that comes at tremendous cost to the country. Uh, by having power so overwhelmingly concentrated in one measure, the country flatlines on all other uh, measures of power. In fact, if you remove uh, military capability from the equation, uh, you'll see that North Korea goes from being a top five power to second to last 
uh, ahead of only Nepal. So that's what I'm doing here on, on the screen. Another way you can use the weightings calculator is by bringing different scenarios uh, to bear on our results. And, and one scenario might be that the United States, uh, for example, signals an unwillingness to get involved militarily in Asia. Uh, so that would result in a loss of credibility among its allies. You would put defense networks to 0%. It wouldn't get involved in the military, uh, in a military conflict in Asia. And you would see that China uh, already becomes the predominant power in Asia under those circumstances. But we have to assume a range of scenarios, and this is why ultimately we are doing an uh, aggregated average of, of across our measures. And this means that our methodology, in some sense, rewards consistent performance um, and punishes uh, areas of chronic weakness that countries uh, may have. <clears throat> Last, but um, um, while I wrap up in 15 minutes, uh, the final point uh, that I'll make is that irrespective of where countries place in the rankings, they can also be overperformers and underperformers. This is something because this is due to the fact that st some states are better than others at using their limited resources to secure broad-based broad influence. So take Japan and India, for example. They're similarly positioned as major powers, but in fact, they present mirror images of each other in terms of how they perform across our measures. India, a demographic giant, ranks third across the resource measures on the left, but, lag but lags in its influence measures. It's only 10th in defense diplomacy. It's only 7th in terms of its economic outreach. Japan, on the other hand, is the quintessential smart power across our influence measures. And that's all the more remarkable when you consider that it has an underdeveloped military capability. And the fact is that its, its prospects as a major power fall with demographic decline. And this really highlights a broader structural trend for the region. And that is that populous developing countries like India, like Indonesia, have an influence shortfall, whilst developed established powers face a diminishing share of resources. So they all have uh, different challenges. The way that we read this is um, through the power gap, which is a separate analysis. This measures the difference between a country's overall power and what its power might be expected to be. The distance from the trend line that you see there reveals how each country has outsized or undersized influence. We have a few underachievers like North Korea because they are misfit middle powers, but also interestingly, Russia. And we think this is a reflection of the fact that Russia uh, sits on the periphery uh, of, of Asia and that its pivot to Asia pales in comparison to its uh, footprint in Europe uh, or in the Middle East. Singapore, by contrast, is a standout overperformer. The city-state with a population of just 5.6 million is highly networked and externally focused. In fact, when you look at the table, you see that the biggest overperformers are not the most powerful countries. They are the second-tier players. They are the ones that have more influence than their raw capabilities suggest. And this speaks to a key quality of middle powers in that they have the ability and the willingness to work creatively in broader networks to define and pursue their interests. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the international order, the balance of power in Asia in 15 minutes. Thank you. Governor Hervé and uh, Michael, thank you for your contributions. I'll start, Ricky, with you and give you the indulgence of a slightly uh, uh, longer panel contribution than normally be the case. So you've heard the three contributions. Perhaps you could give your own thoughts on, the, on the, the power index and then some remarks on your specialty, which is what does all of this mean for Japan? Sure, thanks. Um, I'm sure like most people here, um, 
I found this absolutely a fascinating thing. But the reason for that fascination was that it was a catalyst for me to look at this report, and perhaps it's because I'm a humanities scholar, I'm, you know, I'm looking for arguments and, and trouble. And it made me approach the report in terms of what can't be measured. Here is an index that purports to measure things. So how do you explain things that can't be measured? And when you identify those things, how does that affect your understanding of the things that can be measured? So I'd like to talk about a few of those things. One of the first things that came to mind um, for me was looking at the difference between actual power and perceived power, or perceived power and influence. And the countries that come to mind there are uh, China and Russia, which I believe today are particularly prioritising the latter as a backdoor to real power and influence. Russia and the DPRK in the report are ranked as the greatest underachievers in the power gap score, but arguably they've exercised the greatest influence through disruption, or to use a technical term, ratbaggery. Um, and one example of that would be Russia's involvement in uh, Syria. So I think when I looked at the report, the cultural influence indicator doesn't quite capture this element of perception that we believe a country to be more powerful and more influential than it actually appears to be if you look at it in a quantitative way. Another thing that I looked at was the imbalance between the resources expended and what um, might best be called the bang for buck. And here I think about Japan's experience. <coughs> in previous decades, for example, in the 80s, Japan was the world's largest donor of aid, of ODA. But Japan then, and arguably now, remains known as a lopsided superpower. Japan's normative authority as a pacifist state has not translated into power and influence. Japan is not, <coughs> sorry, Japan is not a permanent member of the UN Security Council, um, a long cherished aim of the Japanese state, still not achieved. And even in very recent experience, when we looked at the engagement with the DPRK, Japan was marginalised on an issue that is arguably of the greatest concern and relevance to Japan's own national interest. Japan was not at the table. If Japan was consulted, its views were not um, in evidence um, as the various discussions took place with the US and with the ROK. So I'm fascinated by this question of disproportionate impact of asymmetric power. And while the report fetchingly calls Russia, the DPRK, and Taiwan as misfit middle powers, 
I think we need to look at how these nations have um, successfully discovered a very um, tangible way of exercising power and influence beyond what the index suggests. And I think if we can look at one more element relevant to Japan. Hervé, you talked about what you do with what you have as being something really important um, for how you understand power. Not just the power you have, but how you use it or your other assets. But how do you explain a country like Japan where its behaviour is influenced not by what it has, but what it tells itself it shouldn't do, about self-imposed constraints, whether that be the constitution, public opinion, uh, GDP limits on defence expenditure, uh, a deep uh, political reluctance uh, to embrace immigration in the face of a demographic catastrophe uh, for Japan. These are self-imposed constraints. How do you measure them? And more importantly, how do you measure the fact that they are influencing the way Japan exerts power and influence or lost opportunity? The opportunity cost of self-imposed constraints is probably the best way uh, of putting it. So these are the things uh, that came to mind when I looked at the report, and uh, I look forward to uh, some questions and some discussion from the panel. Well, thanks, Ricky. I've got a quick question for you, mm. which is not with, not with the liberty of, um, of the expansive panellist response, but the short, sharp shock. What's it mean for Australia? For Australia, the thing... <clears throat> for me... Australia is caught in what Bates Gill is calling the middle power dilemma. We're telling ourselves we don't have to choose between China and the US, and yet effectively we have chosen. Uh, we are an ally of the United States, and we are told that we are walking an increasingly difficult and complex path of navigating um, antagonistic relationships between China and the US. But ultimately, what became clear at APEC, for example, uh, recently in PNG, is that not only Australia, but other allies of the US are deeply reluctant uh, to follow behind the antagonistic um, engagement with China that is beginning to unfold. Thanks. Michael, a couple of questions to you. One, what do you think that all means for the region and then the same question to Ricky, what does it mean for Australia? So firstly, if you, and the Governor referred to this, the KPMG study about where we think the world's economies will be in 2050, and so you have China, US, India, Indonesia as the big four, uh, and that's been what's driving the notion of the Indo-Pacific and a changed Australian posture. To, to what extent do you think that your power index reinforces that, that in terms of where power, economic or geopolitical or strategic or diplomatic is moving, to, to what extent does that economic study by KPMG, uh, to what extent is that underpinned by your power analysis? I think, yeah, I think they're broadly consistent and obviously ours is much broader 
than the KPMG study, and we're trying to factor in lots of different, um, lots of different other elements. Um, I mean, when you measure power now, I think what, what surprised me was um, how far China had caught up with the United States and how much of a gap there was between China and the United States on the one hand and the rest. There was really blue water between the United States and China and everybody else. So that's, that's, that I found very striking. But, but I also think that um, one thing we need to avoid in, in the Australian debate, and I think the KPMG report is useful in this regard, is I think sometimes we are in danger of shrinking the debate on Asia to the, to the dimensions of China. And nowadays, when people talk about Asia, they immediately think about China. Um, and I fall into the trap myself. And what that report reminds us is that there are lots of countries in Asia, including four or five big countries that matter, that are consequential, that will become more consequential as their economies get larger. And, um, and all of those countries deserve to, the, the freedom and the space to make their own way. None of us wants to live in the shade of one big state. And so for Australians, I think we need to think very seriously about the China problem and the China challenge, because as Ricky said, I don't, I don't think Australian diplomats and strategists have ever in our history faced a challenge as complicated as that that as China presents to us. But at the same time, let's not limit ourselves to China. Let's remain open-minded and optimistic and looking for opportunities with India, with Indonesia, with Japan, with Vietnam, South Korea and others. And in, in, in Australia's context itself, I mean, you and I both work for a prime minister who was famous for saying that Australia punched above its weight. I always used to say to myself, well, not quite sure that's right. We're a G20 country, mm -hmm. we're a top 15 economy, we're mm -hmm. top 15 defence and mm -hmm. peacekeeping spender. We're a significant country, mm -hmm. small population, large mm -hmm. land mass, yes, but we're a significant country. Mm -hmm. We should conduct ourselves accordingly. Mm -hmm. So we punched where we should. There are some strands in your report which potentially say, well, if we're not careful, we'll be punching below our weight. Mm -hmm. So on the snapshot of economy, we've gone out, of, out we've, we've gone to sort of uh, 2030, looking mm -hmm. at economy number 11, uh, with a terrible age demographic, mm -hmm. uh, ranked at 17, when India and Indonesia are at one and four respectively. So there are potentially troubling signs in this for mm -hmm. Australia's relativity. And again, if you back that up with the KPMG study, by 2050, we'll be lucky to be in a G30, let alone a, mm -hmm. a G20. So mm -hmm. what, other than a changing geopolitical landscape, what are, the, what are the warning signs for Australia in all of this? Mm. Well, I mean, one way of answering your question is to ask, do you think history is made by vast impersonal forces and demographic changes like the ones you've mentioned, or is it made by flesh and blood individuals who make choices? And I think the answer to that is both. And so I think you're right that there are, what we try to track in the future trends measure is that there are relativities that will work against us. And there's some of those things we can't do anything about because it's not about us, it's about the huge growth of the countries in our region. And they are getting bigger and therefore our relative advantage of them uh, over them is, is lessening. But on the other hand, as Ricky was pointing out in her comments, choices matter, and Ricky talked about Japan, and Japan has 
these self-imposed constraints in relation to the use of force and other issues, where the Japanese polity has made a decision about the kind of country it wants to be and the kind of role in the region and the world it wants to have. And so I think this report presents Australia with similar, with, with similar kinds of choices. Do we want to be a small country or do we want to be a big country? Uh, you could broaden it out from this report. Do we want to be a country with a broken politics, with a negative political debate that is negative about immigration, um, that is inward looking, uh, a country that doesn't bother spending on defence and foreign affairs and aid because, you know, that's the rest of the world and we can focus on ourselves? Or do we want to take a different approach? Do we want to be a, a, a country with a politics that is fixed, with a positive po popular, uh, positive political culture, that is, that understands that immigration is highly correlated with entrepreneurship and bringing people in is good for us as a country? A country that says we want to invest, as Kim remarked in his, in his opening comments, in the national capabilities of having a muscular defence force, uh, of having a, a, a professional and significant diplomatic uh, service with a wide diplomatic network, not one of the smallest dip diplomatic networks in the G20 as we currently have, that has a positive, strong, large aid program. I personally hope that we don't, don't go for those self-imposed constraints. I personally hope that we think big. Just on Australian diplomacy, the, the, the report makes it pretty clear that we're very well regarded as multilateral diplomats. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of, that has been one of our strengths. And there's this old saying that somewhere, somewhere in Canberra and DFAT at the moment, there's someone worrying about the fact that there's a meeting being held somewhere and Australia hasn't been invited to it. <laughs> So that's always been a strength to our bow, and it's hard to see that not continuing, that we would remain true not just to regionalism, and the East Asia Summit is the most recent example of that, but also remain true to multilateralism, which does add to our repertoire and our capacity for perceived power, if not, if not uh, real power or genuine influence, rather than the perception of influence. That's true. and. Um DFAT, is, uh, DFAT is, is staffed with highly alert, active, intelligent human beings. Um, but the truth is that, that, that funding for, for DFAT over, you know, since 9-11 since has flatlined compared to the intelligence agencies and the defence forces. It hasn't grown in conjunction with that, that sort of spending. And so the, the network is stretched and um, is not uh, not fit for purpose from my point of view. And the other thing I would add is just to go back to a comment I made in the introduction is that, you, you know, diplomats are great. Uh, they're very important, but ultimately it's politicians who make history. And um, again, if, you're, if your politicians are hamstrung by chaos in Canberra, if, if they are cancelling trips and cancelling attendances at at international summits, then there's only so much that diplomats can do to backfill. That is not a partisan comment because in the Rudd-Gillard era there, there were similar problems. But I do think, you know, even just, just recently, I mean, I, I, you know, you remember when Mr Turnbull, just before he, he lost office, was going on that Southeast Asian trip to Indonesia and then on to, I think, Malaysia and Vietnam. He went on to Indonesia, but he, he was replaced by Mr Morrison. Who, who went on to Indonesia but had to cancel the other two legs. And I, I look, I think of those things and I think 
That is, you know, people ask, what is, the, you know, what is the effect of all this churn? What is all the effect of the chaos? That's the effect of it. When you don't have prime ministers and foreign ministers and defence ministers who can concentrate on these things because they're looking behind them and, and worrying about their own position, I think it, 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 um, it, it handicaps us. So I, that, that's why I say I would like to see Australia get its mojo back. Well, Hervé, firstly, um, congratulations on the report. It's a terrific uh, research effort. But if I could just... Um, Michael, in his remarks, spoke about um, how you can discern some of what you've researched with various recent uh, prime ministerial or presidential visits. So uh, Modi goes to, uh, to Jakarta before he goes to the Shangri-La dialogue. Um, Modi uh, stands shoulder to shoulder with Xi Jinping. Abe takes a leaf out of everyone's book and one day he's with Xi Jinping and the next day he's with Modi. Uh, and he's also growing a relationship with Indonesia. So um, that anecdotal combination reflects very much what you've discerned in some of the growing influences, in particular India on the rise and Indonesia on the rise. So to what, what extent does the anecdotal back up or predict your detailed research effort? Mm, that's, that's a fascinating question. Um, because until recently, we only had anecdotes to work with. Um, uh, there was no uh, comprehensive data-based assessment that would either dispute or confirm our anecdotes or assumptions. And uh, I'd argue that there were weaknesses in, in both, but I, it's, it's, it's actually better to, to go for both. I mean, uh, we didn't have the data, so now we have the data. Um, to some extent, in terms of our headline findings, uh, I'd say the results confirm my uh, assumption, which was that the US remains marginally predominant and that China will be uh, the most materially consequential country by 2030, even if it lags in terms of its influence and its relationships. Um, but there are surprises, and I, I would agree with you, actually, uh, Professor Kirsten, that one of the surprises was Japan, because we, we, we have, including in Tokyo, such a, a fatalist view of Japan's declining power, about the fact that it's circumspect, about the constitutional limitations on being able to exert uh, power in the region, uh, particularly in terms of its military strength. But what we see is a very dynamic Shinzo Abe, a very dynamic prime minister, um, one who uh, has been able to resuscitate uh, the TPP uh, after the United States left one who's taking a claim for, for free trade, who's proving incredibly nimble uh, at uh, adapting to uh, uh, Donald Trump in the White House, uh, who's rekindling his ties with Tokyo, uh, sorry, with Beijing. Um, so I, I think we have to give them credit and where credit's due. And perhaps we, we were a bit too glass uh, half uh, empty uh, when we should be more glass half full on, on Japan. It has challenges, and I would say, yes, there's a psychology there, which means that it is never going to be the first one to speak in a conference room. But that softly, softly approach appears to have certain benefits as well. So when uh, you get fed up of China uh, and its uh, megaphone uh, uh, diplomacy, you may well turn to Japan's uh, foreign investments in Southeast Asia. Um, so there is a point there about psychology and the psychology of leaders that we'll never be able to read because we can't read their minds. Uh, we can sort of glimpse what they're thinking on the basis of, their, of the pictures uh, and the meetings they have with. But I would say it is also actually useful to look at what the data points to. Because ultimately, if Japan and India become a stronger alliance, 
that should show in terms of uh, joint training exercises, in terms of arms transfers, in terms of more frequent defense consultations. Um, and if that's not showing, if it's just a picture between Modi and Shinzo Abe, then we can probably say it's actually not worth uh, the substance. So there is a point in actually disaggregating the theatrics from, from, from the fundamentals here. Um, I think I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah. Just <clears throat> next question to you, Hervé. You, you, we're now your sort of adopted country, but you still retain your links and you do your French 1.5 Australian dialogue every so often. Um, one of the countries that we have very limited contact with, either economically or diplomatically, is Russia. But as, uh, as was said earlier, you know, Russia is a significant power in Eurasia and Europe and largely a disruptive force from the point of view of, of, of the Western Europeans. So a couple of questions to you wearing a European cap. What's your advice to your European colleagues when you're briefing them on the power index? And how do you see Russia continuing as a power which is disruptive and highly influential in Europe, but not necessarily a significant influence in, in Asia or the Indo-Pacific? Mm -hmm. By the way, don't be fooled by his name. He's called Hervé, but he's not French, he's Belgian. So d don't let him pretend. I, 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 uh, I try not to, I hide that fact from the French so they don't know that, but uh, that's why I run the dialogue for them. Well, on the, on, on the basis of the number, the, the number of French in, in, in Belgium, I was, I was only 60% out. <laughs> Uh, no, that's a fascinating question on, on, on Russia and how the Europeans fit in. I should say we also received an anonymous uh, complaint, uh, but perhaps not so anonymous, uh, that uh, when we launched, uh, within the first 24 hours, we got an email saying, well, why wasn't France included in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, we're a nuclear You'd power. You'd expect nothing less from the yeah, French. Exactly. So at least they're following our stuff. So that's, that's a kind of a compliment. Um, but uh, no, it's, it, you know, Russia is fascinating. Um, and, and Russia is an underperformer in Asia only because, as you say, it's more uh, invested in what's happening uh, in the Middle East and what's happening in Europe. And I think the advice that I give uh, Europeans routinely is that what they're having to uh, in some way uh, engage with, which is tolerance warfare, you know, which is a war of attrition trying to sort of incrementally erode your, your red lines, is something that we in Asia increasingly also have to deal with. Uh, perhaps not with the same players, but it's a similar, it's a similar story. Um, so it's about having principles, and it's about uh, being able to, when challenged, uh, meet and rise to the occasion. Um, and that's something that the Europeans are, are struggling with. I mean, they romanticize the idea of a European army uh, without uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, in the way. Uh, but uh, as soon as uh, Russia is back uh, in terms of its shenanigans in Ukraine, uh, all, all eyes are on Washington to see how they respond in terms of NATO. So you need hard power if you're going to have conviction and soft power as well. So that's, that's the, the big thing. On, on Russia, you know, it's, it's interesting in Asia, it has its own pivot to Asia. And that pivot actually pre-exists the, the so-called pivots that the Americans were trying under the Obama administration. They have a Pacific fleet at Vladivostok, their major Eurasian power. They have defense consultation pacts uh, with North Korea, with Vietnam, with India, with China. Um, and that's something that Putin very consciously renegotiated in his first term as president. So there is an interest to get back involved, but it's really, uh, I think, uh, perhaps owing to the distractions in Europe and the Middle East that they're not doing more, not doing it more in Asia. Thanks.
Governor, one question to you, and then I'll throw it open to a couple of questions from the floor. Um, and this is wearing your US ambassador cap. You know, the rubber hits the road for the United States with reports and analysis such as these. How does the US respond? Does it stoically dig its heels in and say that uh, we can overcome all of these rising powers, particularly China? Or does it say, we're living in a changing world, our relative power has to be eclipsed because we've gone from a unipower, a monopower world to uh, a, a multi-powered world. It's not just China, it's Indonesia and India uh, and Japan. So there's a significant multipolar world that we're going to live in and we just have to accept that the world has changed. How's the US going to respond and how do you think it should respond? Well, that's two t totally different things, of course. A and look, I think... I mean, were it not for the fact that uh, the Americans have now started to massively expand their defence expenditure and at least have some level of focus on w what will pretty well render all the sorts of platforms we've been fascinated by largely obsolete or else determine what we put on them is very different from what we're planning to put on them at the moment. Uh, the Americans at least are now sustaining effective competition with the Chinese and the Russians, they'll blat the Russians away. Um, and, the, and the Chinese, I think, arguably, they'll do particularly well against that, if they can sustain it. So, uh, so that, if that were not the case, if Trump had simply pursued the, the, the policies he pursues in terms of the region and had not bothered to go through the process of at least uh, enhancing the one element of American hard power, which is largely unchallenged as yet, uh, then what you'd have seen was a really massive decline in the effectiveness of the American position in this region. You have a, a, a leader in the United States who totally devalues that alliance system that you uh, put forward, who has a, a, not a power focus on global politics, but a transactional one. And, and a transactional one very simply understood and very old-fashioned and out of keeping with what is uh, the contemporary character of the international economy. And, um, and one who does not conceive of the sorts of roles that America could play in the region as any way significant to the American people or himself. The only place, however, where the Republican Party actually actively gets its uh, act together to confront him is generally in the foreign policy area, uh, on just about nothing else. But in the foreign policy area, at least there is a sort of little hand up of the, the Republican Party, which you can perceive as Jonah, and Trump, which you can perceive as the whale. He has swallowed the Republican Party and the question is, when is he going to vomit the National Party out again? Or is, this going, is, is the juices that are going to work on it effectively dissolve it in the, uh, in the course of the next uh, two to six years? I don't actually think he... Having thought he would win the presidential election, I now think he won't win the next one. And I think if you sit down and look at those results in the Congress, they were devastating for the, he's tried to spin them, but he knows in his heart of hearts they were absolutely devastating. But we're gonna to have to have the conversations because there is no conversation emerging at the senior leadership level that would give us any level of comfort on any of those things that um, you put out in the way in which you measure. Very quickly, Trump, Trump uncertainty is one of the 
influences in the, in the modern era. But the other uncertainty which causes consternation amongst countries is increased Chinese assertiveness and Xi Jinping's assertiveness. What potential do you think ongoing Chinese assertiveness has to diminish their influence despite their growth economically, militarily and geopolitically? Well, uh, Xi has too early repudiated Deng for the good of the Chinese economy and for the good of Chinese influence. Um, I think that he has called people's attention to himself before the Chinese are in a position uh, to really utilise the power that they could have had. They're short of it on multiple fronts, and they've now got people annoyed. And so all these conversations may in the end come to nothing. But if you look at all the quadrilaterals, the trilaterals, the bilaterals that are being thought of through Asia, you can draw a line through them all, and it's all about China. And it's all about constraining China and constraining a power which is not yet so overwhelming that, uh, that the constraint is necessary. All right, we've got 10 minutes or so for some questions from the floor. As the Governor said earlier, there are plenty of familiar faces, but also plenty of unfamiliar faces. So if people who want to ask a question, just raise their hands. There's a roving mic. Just identify yourself and then ask your question to the panel or an individual member of the panel. And don't be shy. This one, yep. It's Ben. Hi, um, Ben Riley, Murdoch. Thanks, everyone. Great presentation. I've got a, a question about the extrapolations, um, and it really comes back to the point Ricky made, which is that um, as countries in Asia get richer, they stop reproducing. And it's happening in Japan. Japan's shrinking. South Korea's going to shrink. China's going to shrink. Singapore stopped reproducing. You know, it's a really fundamental relationship. So how does that interaction between the fact that countries are going to get richer, clearly, but they're also going to get smaller work in terms of your report. That's a fascinating uh, uh, question and, and dimension that we, we also look at. I mean, there's three demographic revolutions, right? The first one is a fall in mortality levels. Uh, the second one um, is uh, the population explodes. And then there's a drop in, in fertility levels and the, and the population levels. And that's usually accompanied with uh, enhanced prosperity, uh, gender rights, and, and so forth. Um, and that's a real problem, but not equally shared by all. So yes, I mean, at some point, every country you can expect will be on that trajectory. I'd argue that Australia is a bit of the Goldilocks there, actually, because you've got immigration sustaining uh, population growth, but not to such an extent that it's uncontrolled. Uh, so you're not like India, where you're adding 169 million people, which is a potential boon, but also a potential source of instability if you don't find jobs uh, and, uh, and don't enhance the productivity of your economy. So uh, on the other hand, on the other end of that scale, uh, you have countries like China who are rapidly aging. Uh, you know, this is a serious crisis. This is going to affect them socially uh, and politically and in terms of their institutional stability in ways we can't even imagine so far. So that is something that we've uh, registered under future trends. We look at future working age populations, and you can really tell uh, that, ch that China is in uh, for some trouble there. Um, and we'll have to see how it plays out. But I do think that you know, countries like Indonesia, countries like Bangladesh, countries like Pakistan are really growing enormously and will continue to in the next uh, 50 years. Um, and countries like Taiwan, uh, uh, South Korea, it's not just a Chinese problem, uh, Japan, 
uh, are all aging, and unless they find other means of um, uh, of making up for the for the loss of population through enhancing their, their productivity, i.e., technology, they're going to be in trouble or opening their doors through immigration. Um, and again, I would say Australia uh, is is very fortunate in that regard, both in terms of immigration and and innovation. Anyone else? Okay. You we saw Singapore being a substantial influence way beyond its uh, size or uh, economy. You'll be pleased to know that um, one of the Singapore Assistant Ministers for Defence was through here recently. Singapore are already planning for, because they have a two-year period of military service, they're already planning how their military service will shape out in 19 years' time as a result of a reduced birth rate in Singapore in the last two years. So planning gets you a long way, and relying upon the data helps. Okay, do we have another? Yep, we've got one just down the. the uh, we've got one down the front, and then we've got one towards the back on the other side. <clears throat> uh, excellent presentation, thank you, uh, Liam from Curtin International Relations Society. Just piggybacking off that demographics question, um, how does the Lowy Institute account for climate change and the rising sea levels in the Pacific? and the inevitable exodus of refugees to nations like Australia. Uh, are we ready? Michael or Hervé? Hervé? Well, there are, there are certain, so I should say that I'd love to include uh, the Pacific uh, Island countries in our index at some point, but there's a dearth of uh, data, available data. So uh, at present, the 25 countries that we look at uh, don't involve uh, th those most at risk uh, for climate change. Um, but yes, it comes back down to development and mitigation strategies, right? So uh, climate change is real, it's happening. Um, even if we manage in the most optimistic scenario to curtail it to about two degrees Celsius, which looks increasingly unlikely, and we're going to be dealing with uh, severe uh, effects uh, for, for decades to come. So we looked at which countries are most prepared uh, to cope with that degree of change. And it's not a surprise, it's the countries that are uh, most affluent on a per capita basis, uh, that have the best uh, welfare system, um, that uh, are capable of innovating technologically such that they can mitigate against climate change. There's no doubt that Australia will be adversely affected and it may well deal with a, a, a migration wave from the Pacific. But I think ultimately uh, Australia is not who I, weigh, I wake up at night uh, you know, worrying about because uh, Australia could absorb uh, uh, a population uh, diaspora from the, uh, from the Pacific. Um, it's more the Pacific island countries themselves that, that, uh, that would suffer in terms of potentially not even existing. But that's for the moment outside the scope of our methodology. So, so we're looking at it in terms of the primary countries in Asia. Could I just add to that because that was a really good question. And, um, and just say, I think, I don't think the Pacific Islands is the principal problem we're going to confront with the people's projections on climate change. I think it's the Mekong and Brahmaputra rivers. And uh, the Mekong and Brahmaputra rivers are, drying, are going to dry up as the Chinese divert their heads through to, to protect their drying. They're already starting to do it. So in the next 30 years, you could well see the Mekong and Brahmaputra unable to sustain the populations around them. At the same time, not everything is disbenefited from climate change. I put that in quotation marks. The Canadians and the Russians probably aren't. And, uh, and our north, our, our south is badly affected. Our north becomes an uh, agricultural state with the amount of rain that's going to come in on the north. So I guess it will want to be uh, 
around to farm it. I mean, these are things that we're going to... Have to it's probably not in my lifetime I'll be dead by then, but no, most people in this room will not be. And uh, that's going to be something that's going to very much preoccupy them. Yep. You're up, thanks. Hi, Claire from UWA. Oh, thank you for that, that's very interesting. Um, I wanted to ask, what does Australia have to offer other countries in the region in order to build its capacity economically and diplomatically? Who wants to have a go at that one? Well, uh, I'll have a go. Um, <clears throat> well, I think one area where we could take the lead is trying to support the international order until the fever in Washington passes. That's one thing we could do, because, because a, country, a country Australia's size benefits when the rules of the road are well established and widely observed. And as Kim alluded, although he's, he's, he's far too vice-regal to be as frank as I can, we have a president, we have a leader of the free world who basically doesn't believe in the free world and doesn't want to lead it, who uh, has been hostile to trade for 30 years, has been sceptical of alliances for 30 years, even though Russia and China would love to have an alliance network as cost-effective as that of the United States. Um, who wants to, who, who has a weird affinity for strong men and who basically doesn't buy in to the argument that being at the centre of the global order brings advantages to the United States. Since the Second World War, American presidents have believed that being at the centre of the global order is in their country's interests and he's oblivious to it. And that is putting pressure on the, on the international order because the international order was established by and around the United States. And at the same time, the order is under threat from new challenges like Russia and China. There are lots of people who are challenging the very principles that define the order. So in terms of what we could offer, as a country that has benefited enormously from that order, I would like to see us doing more to support the order. Both the foreign policy white paper and the defence white paper put the rules-based order at the centre of our interests but it's not clear to me what risks we're prepared to take to support that order, what costs we're prepared to bear. And so the kinds of things I think I would like to see us do, uh, I would like to, to see us call out challenges to the international order, whether they come from Zhongnan Hai or from the White House. I would like us to reach out to the other significant countries in Asia uh, like-minded countries in Asia to see what we can do to thicken connections with those countries. I'd like to see what can we do to, to, to tie extra regional powers like the French and the Brits further into our region. Um, I would like to see us think about how we can work with other middle powers who also have a stake in the region uh, in terms of um, to work out what we can do together to preserve this kind of order. I think it was Hervé or Ricky who mentioned the, the work that Abe and others did in preserving the TPP, even when the United States withdrew from it. I think that's the kind of thing Australia should do. I think we have the capacity and the capability to do it in the form of an effective diplomatic service, as you were referring to, Stephen. Um, there's not a, actually that many other countries that have that much at stake 
in preserving the international order when it's under challenge, but also the capability to do something to support the order. So that's what I would like us to do. Ricky? Yeah, I, I think uh, Australia can do a lot too, and this is very much in the sense of Australia being a middle power. Australia can facilitate. Uh, Australia can um, help build sub-alliance networks within the liberal international order that sustain the integrity of the concept of order itself. And it can also lead in uh, creating um, uh, consensus-based uh, partnerships, if you like, and initiate the creation of order in undergoverned spheres, such as space and uh, cyberspace. We've we're run slightly over seven o'clock, but we did start five minutes late. So against all the urgings I'm receiving from officers, I, there was one up the back, yep. Just last one. Short question and short answer. Hi, I'm Talia from Curtin University. Thanks for extending the time a little bit longer. Um, my question is just in this area of what is sort of more creeping protectionism, to what extent do you see free trade agreements being a successful way of extending Australia's economic power, um, particularly with the likes of Indonesia coming up? And just to build on it, if we do have time, would be with the rising challenges of food and water security, to what extent do you see that as changing the Asia Power Index in the future as well? All right. um, so just on, on food and water security, um, we uh, think it's going to be really important. I, I, I buy that point about the, particularly the water scarcity and the fact that uh, there's increased geopolitical competition now in the Mekong region. If you look at even microstates like Laos, they're, they're building dams that are going to affect the rest of Southeast Asia pretty severely. So we, we, we will... Um, uh, moving into the next, because we're already researching the next index, be looking at uh, water scarcity issues. Um, uh, but we're also not going to sort of pretend that we're going to predict the future. There's a lot of black swan events which we cannot predict, and uh, we have to sort of say, look, we're doing an assessment of what power looks like today. We're looking into the future insofar as we think that's influential insofar as power is perceived today as well, right? So the fact that China, we think, is going to be even more powerful uh, in 15 years' time already kind of benefits China today in some sense. That's the perception of power at work. All right. <clears throat> I might close it off there unless, yep, no champing at the bit from the rest of the panel. Well, firstly, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the Perth US Asia Centre and the Lowy Institute, thank you for attending this uh, Indo-Pacific Indian Ocean launch of Lowy's Power Index. Can we thank our host, the Governor, for his hospitality this evening and his contribution to the panel? And can we thank Hervé and Michael and Ricky for their substantive contributions? Thank you. Thanks very much.